This is session 40 of our synchronized study of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 1. The context here, if you go back to Luke chapter 11, uh, there's a tension that is, well, I mean, the tension's been there for quite a while, but it's really brewing now because Jesus just came right on out and accused the Pharisees of being hypocrites, gave them a pretty good tongue lashing in our last session. So now they are plotting and scheming, lying in wait, just listening to every word that comes out of Jesus' mouth, not to learn anything, but to see if they cannot entrap him, take his words, use them against them. Uh, the last couple of verses in uh, chapter 11, it says, As he left, the scribes and Pharisees followed him closely, and they began to be enraged. They set themselves violently against him to draw him out and provoke him to speak of many things, secretly watching and plotting, lying in wait for him to seize upon something that he might say, that they might be able to accuse him. So there's your context. Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 1, says, In the meanwhile, when so many thousands of the people had gathered, they were trampling on top of each other. Jesus commenced by saying primarily to his disciples, he said, Be on your guard against the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Okay, let me just jump in there real quick, folks. Jesus is about to say several things in this chapter that we've heard before. He said them to the twelve. He has not said them to the seventy. If you remember, a couple of sessions back, he appointed seventy others, so they're hanging around with him now. A lot of this information that Jesus is about to say is reviewed to us, but it's new to the seventy. And as we read this chapter, chapter 12, you can feel a tension in the air. When you read this chapter, Jesus knows that it's months away from his crucifixion. He also knows of the hearts of the people that he's speaking with. He knows all of this in advance, and you get this impression. Jesus actually says this at one point. He's ready to get the cross over with. He knows it's coming. He knows it's there. That's why he came. A lot of people don't realize that there's all this stuff about miracles and healing and everything. He came primarily to go straight to the cross. And the closer he gets to it, the more anxious he is to get it over with. And we're going to sense that in this chapter. But anyway, the Pharisees, they're harassing Jesus, trying to trip him up on his words, hoping that he'll say something that'll get him arrested. And Jesus tells the 70, the disciples that are with him, he says to them in verse 2, or excuse me, verse 1, he says, Beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that shall not be revealed. There's nothing hid that shall not be known. The whole point of religious hypocrisy is to cover up the truth, which is that you're not all that religious. You're actually a fraud, and you think you've covered all of that up with your religious piety and your religious positions and your religious demands. But Jesus says there is absolutely nothing that's covered up that will not be revealed. There's nothing hidden that will not be known. Here the Pharisees are, trying to trip Jesus up on things that he might say, and Jesus tells his disciples, Beware the leaven of the Pharisees. They're standing right there. Now, he's talking to his disciples, but the Pharisees are hearing this. Back then, leaven was a symbolic type for sin. And the reason why is because it would corrupt the bread by puffing up the meal. It was a symbol of pride and arrogance. But then Jesus turns around and says pretty much the same thing again, but focuses toward his disciples and the secrets they've been telling. Secrets that are not leaven, but truth. The truth of who Jesus really is and why he came. 
because of the atmosphere, it's a secret. You kind of keep it to yourself. You're worried about the persecution from the religious leaders. But Jesus tells them, whatever you have spoken in the darkness shall be heard and listened to in the light. And what you have whispered in people's ears and behind closed doors will be proclaimed upon the housetops. Jesus is giving them a prophecy of what's about to come. Because right now, a few months before Jesus' crucifixion, the truth of who he is is being spread, but it's done in secret. It's done with whispers in people's ears. It's done behind closed doors in the dark. But Jesus knows that's going to change after his death and resurrection. And the next thing he says is almost comical, folks, but it's something that we all should remember. Jesus says, I tell you, my friends. So he starts off addressing them as his friends. But he says, I tell you, my friends, don't dread or be afraid of those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more that they can do. But I'll warn you of whom you should fear. Fear him who, after killing, has the power to hurl you into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Now, folks, this is not so much a threat to his disciples. He's making a threat to the Pharisees who are hell-bound, while comforting his disciples at the same time. He's letting them know, don't fear these guys. Worst they can do is kill you. They're the ones who ought to be afraid, because after their body dies, unlike yours, God has the power to hurl them into hell. So you should put all of that into perspective and not be afraid of these guys. We shouldn't be afraid of other people who disagree with our Christian opinions and views. We shouldn't be afraid of whatever the status quo is. If we know the truth is from God, then that's the truth. I don't care what they say on The View or the magazines or whatever they say at school. If God said it, it's the truth. God plus one equals the majority every time. I don't care who it is or what it is. Sometimes you can have a whole church against you. It doesn't matter. If you know what God said, and that's what God said, then that's what the truth is. And that's pretty much what's going on with these disciples here. Jesus knows that he's got disciples following him, and he's got Pharisees who are waiting for somebody to say something that will give them cause to arrest somebody, have them put to death. And Jesus is saying, don't be afraid of these clowns. The worst they can do is kill you. After they die, they're going to be cast into hell. Just put things into perspective. And something else I want to mention, folks. This is the first time in the chronology that Jesus has spoken of hell so flamboyantly. And the reason why is because he knows the hearts of the Pharisees who are pursuing him. These are people that know Jesus is the Messiah. And they've chosen to reject him. They can't see what the entire Old Testament prophesied to happen. I take that back. I say they can't see. They won't see would be a better way of saying it. There are a lot of people, folks, who can't see things because they won't see it. That's where you get the phrase eyes wide shut. They won't see it. Doing that is what the Bible calls the unforgivable sin. It's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit because it's the Holy Spirit. That is the spirit of truth. All truth is given to all people through the Holy Spirit, which is why if you read Romans chapter 1 and then look at the world, it's amazing. The more a society rejects God, the more stupid that society becomes. People start asking questions. Where did all the common sense go? Well, common sense is a gift from God. You reject God, you don't get common sense. And if you'll notice, most people without common sense are usually the people who think they're the most brilliant people on the planet. And that's right in line with the scripture, folks. Romans chapter 1, 
Claiming to be wise, they make simpletons of themselves. They rejected the truth for a lie. And while claiming to be wise, they become fools. So Jesus is saying, don't be afraid of these inept, foolish clowns who can do nothing but destroy your body. And besides, they can't even do that unless God the Father allows it to happen, which is why Jesus said the next thing here in verse 6. Jesus says, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And yet not one of them is forgotten or uncared for in the presence of God. Even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be struck with fear or seized with alarm. You are of greater worth than many flocks of sparrows. So much in those two verses, folks. Number one, the very idea that, oh, well, an animal's just an animal. God would never say that. God watches over every sparrow. He knows every sparrow intimately. But then the next verse, he says, even the hairs of your head are numbered. We are of such obsession to God that he has even numbered all the hairs of our head. Sometimes we wonder, does God really care about us? Well, I don't know. How many other people do you know who love you so much that they know how many hairs you have? So that's the second reason why Christians should not be afraid, especially when it comes to proclaiming our love for Jesus Christ. The first reason was that nobody can do anything except to destroy our body. Man can only destroy the body. And that's nothing. We're immortal, folks. So that's reason one why we shouldn't be afraid. Reason two We are watched after and cared for. We're worth more to God than many flocks of sparrows. And Jesus said not a single sparrow falls to the ground without the Father's consent. All the hairs of our head are numbered. So we have God's absolute obsessive attention toward every detail of our life, even our body. And the third reason why we shouldn't be afraid to proclaim our love for Jesus Christ and our devotion to him and what he's taught us. Verse 8. Jesus says, I say unto you, whoever shall confess me before men, him shall the Son of Man also confess before the angels of God. See, today, Jesus is a subject. He's a conversation piece. There's a day coming, folks, when he's not going to be a religious topic. He's not going to be a subject piece. He's going to be the king, and the whole universe is going to worship him. Whoever declares openly, speaking out freely, and confesses that he is my worshiper and acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also declare, confess, and acknowledge him before the angels of God. Now with that in mind, look at the next verse. But, Jesus says, verse 9, He that denies me before men shall be denied before the angels of God. And whosoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But unto him that blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven. Notice this verse and the verse previous to it. They tie together, folks. A person who denies and rejects and refuses to acknowledge Jesus before men is the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit. Jesus introduced all of this in Luke chapter 11, Matthew chapter 12, and we covered all of that in exhaustive detail in our session 17, if you want to go back and check that out. But Jesus is still speaking to his disciples, knowing that the Pharisees are listening. And Jesus is also aware of the fear of his followers because of persecution. He also knows that it's going to get a lot worse, because as the gospel spreads after Jesus' resurrection, the persecution is going to get worse. So Jesus gives them a little comfort about that in advance. 
He tells them, verse 11, he says, When they bring you before the synagogues and the magistrates and the authorities, don't be anxious beforehand about how you shall reply in defense or what you are to say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour and moment what you ought to say. And that's very interesting, folks. What a contrast between those who blaspheme the Holy Spirit by denying Jesus versus those who will have the Holy Spirit himself teaching people what to say at the moment they need to say it for accepting Jesus. That's absolutely incredible. Verse 13, someone from the crowd said to him, Master, order my brother to divide the inheritance and share it with me. But Jesus told him, Man, who has appointed me an umpire and divider over you? Guard yourselves and keep free from all covetousness, for a man's life doesn't consist in the abundance of the things in which he possesses. And then to elaborate further, Jesus is going to give a parable that expresses a point that Jesus has made before. Seek first the kingdom of God, his righteousness, all these things will be added unto you. You know how it goes. Lay treasures up in heaven where moth and rust doesn't corrupt and thieves do not break through and steal. Or where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. He makes the same point again, but in a way that is much more direct and a little... Well, let me just read it to you. Verse 16, then he told him a parable, saying, The land of a rich man was fertile and yielded plentifully. And he considered, What shall I do? I have no place to gather together my harvest. And he said, I will pull down my storehouses and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain, all my produce, and all my goods. And then I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many good things laid up, enough for many years. So take your ease, eat, drink, and enjoy yourself merrily. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul will be required of you. And all the things that you have prepared, whose will they be now? So it is with the one who continues to lay up and hoard possessions for himself and is not rich in his relationship to God. This is how he fares. And Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, don't be anxious or troubled with cares about your life as to what you will have to eat or about your body as to what you will have to wear. For life is more than food and the body is more than clothes. Observe and consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouses nor barns, and yet God feeds them. How much more worth are you than the birds? And which of you, being overly anxious and troubled with cares, can add a single cubit to your stature or a moment of time to your age and length of life? If then you are not able to do such a little thing as that, why are you anxious and troubled with cares about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you that Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass in the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, then how much more will he clothe you, O you people of little faith? Now folks, just to clarify something here, Jesus is not calling us to laziness. He's not saying sit on your butt and everything's going to fall in your lap. That's not what he's saying. Everybody has a role. Everybody has things they have to do. But the point is, don't worry about it. Just cooperate with God in whatever it is he wants you to do, and he's going to make sure that you get what you need. Verse 29, Don't seek after what you shall eat or what you shall drink, neither be doubtful in mind. 
For all these things the world greedily seeks after, the pagan world, and your father knows that you have need of them. But rather seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be given to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So sell what you possess and give donations to the poor. Provide yourself with purses and handbags that do not grow old. Now, let me just interject, folks. He's not saying be a nomad. Don't sell everything and be a bum on the street corner. That's not what he's saying. This is in reference to the parable he gave about the man who had so much that he was trying to build bigger storehouses. What the guy in that parable should have done is just supplied for himself, and then everything that was left over, he should have been giving it to other people instead of hoarding it for himself so he could have a 30-year retirement plan. So that's what Jesus is talking about. This is talking about your abundance. Sell what you possess, give to the poor, and provide yourselves with purses and handbags that do not grow old, a treasure in the heavens that fails not, where no thief can approach, neither moth corrupts. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So saving up for your retirement's okay, so long as you realize retirement begins after the funeral, not before. Actually, we're not going to be retired there either. We're going to be working there, except it's going to be a whole lot of fun. The point is, it's futile to heap up riches on the earth. And folks, I could spend a lot of time talking about this. It's futile in more ways than one. It's not just futile because people will die and leave it all here. It's because everything here is an illusion. All the things that we chase after. They look like one thing until you get to them and you get them and you bring them into your home for a possession. It never satisfies. It doesn't give you what you want. It's just elusive and you, it's like chasing shadows. You're never satisfied. You never, take for example, uh, home entertainment. And this is something I've had experience with. It was such an obsession to get all the best movies, VHS videotape library. Uh, when I tried to record it on TV, there was always something wrong with the picture. It wasn't high quality, so I had to purchase the tapes to make it high quality. And just about the time I was ready to perfect this whole system, then DVDs get invented. I got to get DVDs because they're better than the tapes. The tape's going to grow old, so I got to get DVDs. Well, you know how the rest of this goes. Then Blu-ray comes along. Well, you can't have Blu-ray without a Blu-ray player. Well, you can't have a Blu-ray player without an HD TV so you can appreciate what that's all about. They're now talking about ultra high definition. It's chasing shadows. And that's just entertainment. Is there anything wrong with getting all of that stuff? No, but it's chasing shadows. It's empty. It's in vain. And there's so much more that could be done with our time and energy. You know, one of the most recent things that I was thinking about just here lately getting all of these books that help me with these Bible studies that I put online. There's different translations of the Bible, different study Bibles, stuff by John Phillips and H.A. Ironside and J. Vernon McGee and William McDonald and, you know, Henry Morris and Chuck Missler. There's all this awesome stuff out there. And folks, I could just kick myself over and over and over again for not getting all of that stuff 20 years ago. But man, I had to get that movie collection, had to get that game collection. That's just an example of what Jesus is trying to talk about. Invest in the kingdom of heaven, because even though I can't keep these books physically, everything I've gained from these books, it's all a part of who I am, and that is forever. Now, do you have to be a bookworm like me? No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is invest your attention, your time, your passion toward things that are eternal, not temporary. 
Because I'm going to tell you something, folks. The closer you get to the Lord, the more you pray and the more you read the Bible, the more you become aware. Until Jesus comes back, makes things eternal, removes the curse, removes sin, there's just no reason to be invested in anything going on down here. Other than people who need us, who need our help, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, people that we can pray with, people that we can talk with. That's the kingdom, folks, because those Christians, we're going to be with them forever. This is what we're to be doing until Jesus comes back or the day we die, whichever comes first. Verse 35, Jesus says, keep your loins girded and your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to return home from the marriage feast. Now, to understand the context of what Jesus is saying here, to understand the culture back in those days, what the groom would do, he would first have supper with his friends. Then he went to the house of his bride to claim her. And then he would return to his own house, bringing her with him. And even though it was late, he expected his servants to be waiting for him and ready. So Jesus said, keep your loins girded and your lamps burning. Lamps mean we're, you know, we're waiting, we're watching. Jesus said, be like men who are waiting for their master to return home from the marriage feast, so that when he returns from the wedding and comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake and alert and watching when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will gird himself and have them recline at table and will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch before midnight or the third watch after midnight and finds them so, then blessed are those servants. Now, folks, before we move forward and talk about this, let's address the elephant in the room for those of you who are mystics like me who like to find symbolism and stuff. Jesus talks about the master coming back from the marriage feast. I don't think that is supposed to be symbolic of the marriage supper of the lamb. Because if it is, then that means the servants in this particular parable would have to be Israel because there's no mention of the bride. Now, there is a possibility that that's exactly what Jesus meant, but I don't think so. So I'm going to interpret it from the perspective that it's not meant to symbolize that first, and then I will cover the other interpretation just in case I'm wrong. I don't think it means that. I think the point of this particular parable is this idea that people should be expecting him back at any moment. Jesus said, keep your loins girded and your lamps burning. In other words, don't turn off the lights and go to sleep. Keep the lights on. You're expecting him to come back, right? He says, be like men who are waiting for their master to return home from the marriage feast, so that when he does return and comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. In other words, they're not waking up, oh, oh just, a minute, just a minute, just a minute, and then running down the stairs, putting on the robe. No, they're down there waiting. They can't wait. The lights are on. They're dressed. They're just waiting to open the door as soon as he knocks. They're waiting for it, as opposed to being asleep in the room with the lights turned off. That is the point of that parable. And Jesus says, blessed are those servants. Why are they blessed, folks? This is the cool thing. Jesus said, truly I say to you, he will gird himself and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. Do you, folks, the idea that Jesus, like he hasn't served us enough already, right? That to those of us who can't wait for Jesus to come back, if he finds us ready and waiting and alert, he would be so emotionally touched by that that as soon as he picks us up and takes us to heaven, that he would serve us. 
Folks, that just blows me away that he is so grateful and touched that we were so looking forward to his return that we couldn't go to sleep, that we were alert. That's why they're blessed. It says if he comes in the second watch before midnight or the third watch after midnight and finds them waiting, blessed are those servants. And folks, I can't stress enough the idea of anticipation and imminency in this particular parable, meaning they were not told when he was coming back. They have somewhat of an idea, but they don't know when he's coming back. They were not given a time. So they're staying up, whether it's the first watch, second watch. They don't know. But the longer they wait, the closer they know that they are to him returning. They anticipated his coming. Now, folks, if this parable pertains to the church, I think the lesson is obvious. Not sleeping, not being lazy, but watching. But there is a possibility that this particular parable is focused on Israel, and the reasoning is that the marriage here is referring to the marriage supper of the lamb and the bride. The bride's not present in this parable. Therefore, this particular parable is referring to the Jews, the nation of Israel, who's on the planet Earth after the rapture, who are wondering when the Messiah is going to come. They don't know when he's coming back, but they've narrowed it down to a particular envelope of time, first watch, second watch. In other words, if I was a Jew and I was on the planet Earth, Antichrist takes over, the church is gone. Once I realize that the Antichrist is the Antichrist and that Jesus was the Messiah and the two witnesses are slain and all that stuff, I've got enough prophecy in the Bible to pretty much figure out how much time we've got left. But I have sort of a problem with that interpretation of the parable. But I just wanted to give it to you because if if the servants in this parable are Israel, there's a lot of loose ends that I don't know how to tie up. I just don't. But that could be because I'm just not smart enough to tie them up. I just wanted to give it to you. It might be what it means. Good news is it doesn't matter. Because if we keep reading, if this parable's for Israel, then the next parable is definitely for the church. Look at it. Verse 39, Jesus says, But be assured of this. If the householder had known at what time the burglar was coming, he would have been awake and alert and watching and would not have permitted his house to be dug through and broken into. You must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour and at a moment when you do not anticipate it. We're to be watchful, we're to be ready, we're to anticipate his return at any moment. Now, there are several signs that are in the Bible. There's chapters and chapters, and we're going to cover them when we get to them. Jesus gave plenty of signs for us to be watchful for. When Jesus says, be alert and watchful, what's he talking about? Be watchful for what? Be watchful for his return, for the signs of his return. Just like if you're the householder waiting for the burglar. You're not looking at a calendar. You're waiting to see evidence of the burglar. You're waiting. Did I hear a door knock? Did I hear somebody creeping around in the other room? Did I hear something in the bushes out there? You're watching. You're listening. Exploring for signs and evidences that the burglar is about to break into the house. You don't do that with a calendar or a clock. You do it with a flashlight. You stay awake. You look out the window. You observe what's going on around you. Too many Christians today are lazy because they live in their own little circle, their own little bubble. They have no idea what's going on, and they're very aggravated when you want to bring up to them the possibility that the Lord's return could be soon because there's evidence of that. 
Not saying that you know that he's coming soon, but there seems to be signs that he may be coming back very, very soon. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear it because they don't want to get a flashlight. They don't want to sit in readiness. They want to continue to sleep as though he's not coming back. Now, Peter said to him in verse 41, Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all alike? And the Lord said, who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household to give them their portion of meat in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master finds so doing when he arrives. Truly, I tell you, he will set him in charge over all his possessions. But if that servant says in his heart, my master is late in coming, and he begins to strike the men servants and maids and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour of which he does not know and will punish him and cut him off and assign his lot with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act as he should will be beaten with many lashes. But he... <laughs> He who did not know and did things worthy of a beating shall be beaten with few lashes. For everyone to whom much is given, of him shall much be required. And to him whom men entrust much, they will require and demand all the more. Now, first of all, folks, I just want to set something straight. Jesus is not condoning slavery. That is not what this is about. The concept of slavery and servitude, it was worked into their economy back in those days. Jesus is not endorsing it. He just knows that the people of those days were very familiar with the system, so he's using it as an example to make a point. Since we're not very familiar with that concept, we would today probably think more in terms of employers and employees. Make it out to be an employer, and it's a butler who's being paid wages. The employer leaves, and when he comes back, if the servants in the house are doing exactly what they were told to do, then that's great. That means he's going to hire them to do more. But if he comes back and he finds the butler half naked on the couch with a can of beer in his hand watching a football game, that guy's going to get fired. Now, all the people who love to engage in the eternal security debate want to take this parable and say, now, see, see, he look at this. This guy wasn't doing right. He lost his salvation. And then the Calvinists come along and say, no, 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 no. He was never saved to begin with. He was never saved to begin with. Folks, I don't want to get into that. I'm so sick and tired of getting into those debates. The Bible is very clear that a person cannot lose their salvation on the one hand, but on the other hand, we are called to obedience. And we will be disciplined by our loving Father, disciplined in love for correction. Not for pain, not for wrath, but for correction. Now, I have heard one interpretation that suggests that the faithful steward in that particular parable was a faithful, legitimate Christian, while the unfaithful servant was a type of Christian leaders who are frauds, Pharisees. But that's not the point of this parable. The whole point of this, the one thing that everybody misses because they want to get into their whole debate about eternal security. The point is, folks, is that we don't know when Jesus is coming. And we're to be watchful and ready as though he could come back in the next 10 seconds. That's the point of the parable to cause us to realize that readiness, alertness is what he wants from us. Not to take this parable and dissect it and try to figure out who's saved and who isn't. That's not the point of the parable. Let's finish up this chapter. Verse 49, Jesus says, I have come to cast fire upon the earth and how I wish that it were already kindled. 
Folks, I don't think Jesus is talking about the Great Tribulation, although in the Tribulation period, there is a point where fire is cast upon the earth. But that's not what he's talking about. If you read the context, listen to what he says next. He says, I have a baptism with which to be baptized, and how greatly and sorely I am urged on until it is accomplished. So let's go back. He's talking about his crucifixion. Because the word baptized means to be submerged. He's talking about his death, three days in the earth. Verse 49, I have come to cast fire upon the earth and how I wish that it were already kindled. I have a baptism with which to be baptized and how greatly and sorely I am urged on until it is accomplished. Do you suppose that I have come to give peace upon the earth? No, I say to you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided among themselves, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. What Jesus is prophesying is the next 2,000 years of families being divided because of those who are saved and those who reject Christ. I've seen families divided over stuff like that. And and what's really sad about it is, folks, it's not the Christians who do the dividing. It's really sad. You would think it would be, but it's not. Usually Christians are content to accept their own faith and let other people make up their own minds about things. But the more true you are to yourself in your faith, the more it repels people who have chosen to reject Christ. Because that's what's going to happen. When when you accept Christ and it changes you, it will either change the people around you and they want to be a part of it, or they will be repelled by it. They will not be in the middle. They will not stand aloof and be mediocre about it. They will either want to be a part of it, or they're going to want to be away from it. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Because of what he did, he came, he's going to the cross, he's going to provide an option for forgiveness. In other words, everybody's got a sin debt to take care of. Jesus' attitude, look, you can either let me pay for it or you can pay for it. If I pay for it, then it's done. And it's going to change your life. And the people who accept that, it does. It changes them from the inside out. They're adopted into the family. But it divides families. It divides people. And one of Jesus' titles is the Prince of Peace because he will bring peace to the earth when he sets up his kingdom. It's going to be an eternal peace. But before that happens, we've got 2,000 years of division because of a Christ-rejecting world doing everything they can to get rid of the Christians. So anyway, verse 54, let's continue. Let's get through this. Then Jesus turned to the crowd and said, When you see the clouds beginning to form in the west, you say, Here comes a shower, and you're right. When the south wind blows, you say, Today will be a scorcher, and it is. You hypocrites, you interpret the sky well enough, but you refuse to notice the warnings all around you about the crisis ahead. Why do you refuse to see for yourselves what is right? If you meet your accuser on the way to court, try to settle the matter before it reaches the judge, lest he sentence you to jail. For if that happens, you won't be free again until the last penny is paid in full. Jesus is laying it out there. Everybody's got a judgment day coming, whether they want it to come or not. And Jesus is saying, look, we can settle this before you can go to court. You don't have to approach God the Father in court and be sentenced. You don't have to do that. We can take care of this before the judgment day comes. We can take care of it right now. 
because I'm headed to the cross and I'm going to pay for all the sins of humanity, all the sins of the world, so that all your sin debt can be paid in full right here, right now, and be done with, or you can pay for it yourself when the day comes. But it actually makes more sense to take care of it before it goes to court. That's what Jesus is saying. We're going to stop it there, folks. And uh, I guess we'll continue. We'll start in Luke chapter 13 next time. Until then, we're out of here. Take care.